what I think should be very motivating to all of us, which is to do our most exceptional work because work is how we serve the world. Mm -hmm. Work is how we love neighbor as self. It is one of the ways in which mm -hmm. we express loving neighbor as self. And, and we can't do that if we're not doing exceptional work. Mediocrity loves nobody, right? Mm -hmm. Like mastery loves people. Like yep. we are loved by people who are masters of their crafts. This episode of The Work Ethic is brought to you by Wellbelt Bikes. Wellbelt Bikes is a social enterprise working to make affordable, reliable transportation available to everybody. They're doing this by gathering bikes that might otherwise go wasted or taking bikes in as donations, old bikes that might be laying around your garage, which by the way, you can donate to this enterprise by dropping them off at any time that they're open. But they gather these bikes, they rebuild them, uh, making them available for sale, refurbished bikes for sale at really affordable prices, great bikes, super accessible. And they do this so they can take the sales revenue and invest it into an earn a bike program so that those with little to no money can also get a bike through a small investment of community service hours, a bit of sweat equity work that they put in to earn their bike. And at the end of this program, they get a bike, lights, lock, helmet, water bottle, really uh, and a safety training. So everything that they need to be commuters, to get around town, to have access to the rest of the city, its opportunities, its economy, uh, a, a really great program. They also offer a full service repair shop on sliding scale so that it's available and accessible to everybody. They invite everybody, whether you earned a bike or bought a bike, or you're just a neighbor that already has a bike and likes to go riding to ride with them every Tuesday night. There's a group ride at 630 that you're all invited to. If you're in Tampa, Florida, their shop is located in University Mall right next to USF in the uptown university area. Go check them out. It's at Wellbuilt Bikes on any social platform or bikeshoptampa.com if you want to find their website. Hard work, work. Hard work. That's what they say. Hard work, work. Hard work. I earn my pay. Hard work, work. Hard work. Do it every day. Hard work, I get work. up about a quarter to three. Hard work, work. to go and earn my pay. All right, so I'm sitting here today with Jordan Rayner. What's up, Jordan? Hey, John. So Jordan is a national best-selling author of Call to Create, and I guess a soon-to-be best-selling author of we'll new see. book, Master of One. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, recent, you started podcasting, a recent host of uh, Call to Mastery. Yeah, this is a very new thing for me, so you, you got you to show me your ways. How's that been for you? So here's the deal. I don't listen to podcasts, so... I don't know the medium, so I wasn't super excited about doing a show. But my audience, we get about um, we get about hundred thousand people who receive my weekly uh, faith and work devotional, right? And we did a big survey, and everyone's like demanding audio, demanding a podcast. I was like, all right, I'll do this, like very begrudgingly, but I love it. I've it's loved really fun, isn't it? making the show because I mean it, it's just a great excuse to have interesting conversations with pretty amazing people, right? Like that. That's that's fun. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you were writing and in your books, you were already interviewing people. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like if you're just a researcher, right. like, I mean, the old reporter, you're like, hey, let's record this conversation so I can go back and take notes on it. You're going to do that anyway. Yeah, my books are like very story driven. Yeah. Right. Like I love story driven books. Uh, and so called to great master of one master of one is basically a collection of 20 stories of Christians who are exceptional at whatever it is that they do vocationally and trying to understand how their faith drives them in that pursuit of excellence. And um, yeah, so I was already doing these interviews. I'm like, well, let's just make these public, <laughs> right? Uh, and put it in a different format. So Yeah. So you have, what, you've put out how many episodes now? Yeah, so we recorded 
29 guests in eight days, which I do not recommend that anybody ever do. That was nuts. That's a lot. That was a lot. Uh, but we, we launched with five episodes and now we're doing one a week. So I think we're up to, I don't know, something like 10 episodes that have been launched so far. Nice. Um, yeah. And it's chucking along. I'm like shocked at people's response to the show. It's been awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And we both got to sit down with Will Barrett. Yeah. Yeah. You get it. Yeah. You should go listen to the work ethics episode with Will Barrett, which is one I, I I'm serious. So when I was researching my show, uh-huh. I was like, I, I got to I gotta start listening. You should listening. hear a podcast. I should hear a podcast. <laughs> I should understand what it's like to download a podcast. I listened to your episode with Will, uh-huh. uh, who is my direct report at Threshold 360, uh, who I was also interviewing for my show, and uh, and a few others. But you were on a very, very short list of like five shows I listened That's to. That's awesome. Yep. Now, we jumped right in. Yep. And so you mentioned uh, your direct report at yeah. Threshold 360. Some of the rest of your bio, I guess, is you're, the, you're now executive chairman of Threshold 360. So you were for a time CEO. Yeah. Uh, I've transitioned to the chair. Yep. And, uh, and so then, do you want to... Just for those listening, give a brief intro to what that is. Yeah, sure. So Threshold 360, we are building the world's largest library of 360 experiences of public locations, hotels, restaurants, shops, attractions. We've created this content at, I think it's almost 200,000 locations in 19 countries uh, and have built a nice business around licensing that content out uh, to Google, to, uh, you know, San Francisco travel, visit Dallas tours and bureaus and hotels. Uh, So we own this asset and then we license it out to anybody who wants to help travelers decide where they're going to go offline. Now, so we we have a uh, we have a 360 shot of the bike shop that yeah. we we've been getting from you guys, and um, it's I mean at, at the very least it's just super cool. It's super cool to be able to sit down with someone because you know I a lot of times I'll take meetings and I they can't meet me at the bike shop, you know, and I'm like it's just so nice to be like man if you could just walk the space, hmm. and it's just made it really easy to be like oh you know what we can walk the space I can just pull it up on my phone or pull yeah. it up on the computer. And, and it, it, you know, 360 photography has been around forever. I mean, in real estate, <clears throat> sure. This stuff yeah, is 20 tours. years old, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Those sucked. They, they really suck. <laughs> they still suck. A lot of them suck. <laughs> yeah. But you know, uh, I think a lot of people see 360 media and like, Oh, that's cool. But they don't understand how valuable it is. Right? Like Google's got lots of data that shows that adding this content to a search result doubles the likelihood that somebody shows up at that location really? offline. It's crazy, right? It, it's it's decision-grade information. It gives you so much more information that you can get from a flat two-dimensional photo. And so that's why we're so bullish about Threshold 360 and owning this library of content. Now, what's the deal? You guys have some kind of a deal with Google or something? Because I noticed like your, your, <laughs> the photos that you took appear way higher in our in our search results or something like that is that they they, they do uh by design, so if I you guess? yeah if you if you search for really uh any hotel restaurant in the united states there's a decent chance you're going to see one of our photographs on it you couldn't have said that a couple of years ago uh and yeah so we upload most of our content uh mm-hmm. not all of it to Google's platform. I believe we are like by far the largest contributor of interior 360 imagery on Google's awesome. platform globally. Yeah. Uh, so, and they, they rank highly. We actually don't control that at all. They rank highly because of Google's algorithm. And they're uh, just like, hey, 360. Yeah, well, yeah. That, and our photos get photos. a lot of engagement, right? Yep. They're really high quality. They're really consistent thanks to your former guest, Will, and mm-hmm. his team making our process really consistent for how we uh, aggregate and collect that content in the field. Yeah. Let's see. You've done a couple other things. Yeah. Um, I, 
I was really intrigued. So I went and watched an old video of yours. I have no idea oh, when geez. it's from, yeah. but you told a, uh, a story. I mean, I, I, you opened this talk was uh, when I was 14. I knew I wanted to be a, a, a what, a Republican. A Republican political operative? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And, oh, uh, yep, yep. And, <laughs> We're going uh, deep. And well, what was interesting to me about that is actually something that's current to me. So, so Wubba Bikes, you know, is at University Mall. There's a huge investment coming in with RD management into that area. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of being spearheaded um, by what's called the Innovation Partnership or mm-hmm. Innovation Alliance or something like that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're kind of the Uptown United crew, mm-hmm. which is really being done by Mark Sharp. Mm-hmm. And I guess Mark Sharp was a teacher of yours for government class yeah. when I guess another teacher got fired. Yeah. And this is an origin story of this some of this? This is like the origin story of my tell professional us, tell life. Tell us the story. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I owe... I owe almost everything in my career to like Mark Sharp for giving me ambition and like cultivating that ambition gene in me. So I was in hmm. eighth grade and uh, I had an American government class and our teacher, I, I still can't remember like why she got fired. They probably didn't tell us like halfway through the school year, our American government teacher got fired and they brought in this guy to replace her for the second half of the year. His name is Mark Sharp. Uh, if you live here in Tampa Bay, you know that name. Uh, so Mark came in and this is back in, so I'm in eighth grade. So this is 19... 19- 99 to no, this is 2000 okay so i'm sitting in, in the eighth grade and it was in the middle of the republican presidential primary so this is when bush and mccain were like duking it out in okay. south carolina whatever and um i just was like fascinated by the election but also fascinated by mark's background because at this time he had ran for Congress three times, right? Mm-hmm. Lost three times, mm-hmm. but came closer than any Republican ever has since to winning that particular district down in South Tampa. And I was just like, who is this guy? At the time, Mark was probably 35 and he had already run for Congress three times. And I'm like, man, I got to I got to get going. Like this guy's like, serious <laughs> about his life and career. And uh, no, Mark just Mark just very graciously uh, took me under his wings all throughout high school and really became my mentor. And um, yeah, from the eighth grade, I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like, I'm going to run campaigns. And so actually the first real job, full-time job I ever had, I was 17 years old. I was about to graduate from high school and uh, I was planning on starting Florida State in the summer. So just a month after uh, graduating high school. And Mark pulled me into his office one day. He's like, hey, it's been 10 years or however long it's been since I ran for office. I'm going to do it one more time. I want you to be my campaign manager. And I was like, that's stupid. (laughs) That's a bad idea, (laughs) Mark. That's a bad idea. Uh, He's like, will you defer enrollment uh, to Florida State so you can stay back and run my campaign? I was like, of course I will. Yeah, that that was like a no-brainer. And uh, yes, so we ran that campaign. I say I ran it. He really ran it. I was just along for the ride. Uh, But we ran that campaign and we won. And it was a big campaign. It was a countywide campaign here in Hillsborough County for the Hillsborough County Commission. uh, Third largest county in the state. Uh, And yeah, so once we won, I was like, oh, I might be good at this. Uh, And I really like starting things from relatively nothing and winning. That's fun. So I thought that that was going to evolve into a career as a Republican political operative. And fast forward, I I, uh, I go to school, Florida State, chose Florida State because I wanted to be in the Capitol, did an internship every single semester I was in college, uh, usually political. Mm-hmm. And uh, towards the end of my college career, I took a semester off to go work in the White House under George W. Bush. I did an internship up there. And I'm... Um, Great experience of retrospect, but was the moment where I was like, yeah, politics might not be for me. Like, I'm not sure how much I actually care about 
uh, public policy and governing. I care about starting something out of relatively nothing and winning. And that's true in politics, true yep. in campaigns, yep. but it's also true in entrepreneurship. And so that's kind of, that was kind of the big, the first big left right moment in my career, choosing entrepreneurship over politics. Can you unpack that experience yeah. a little bit? Just like, what was it that felt like maybe this isn't the policy thing might not be it. And it might actually be calling things into being or something like that. Yeah. So <laughs> One, uh, the White House was brutal, like really, really, really brutal culturally, hmm. um, <clears throat> but also just uh, just in, ter- in terms of workload. I mean, I, I worked 90, 100 hour weeks every week while I was there, which is fine. That's what you're supposed to do when you're 20 years old. Sure. Right. Like I was sure. I was all about it. But I was watching people who were married do that. And I was like, mm, that doesn't look like what I want my life to look like. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I, I didn't really see a lot of models of people who had healthy marriages and healthy family lives and, mm. you know, were, were working at the white house. I'm sure there, I'm sure there were plenty. It's probably exists, I'm sure there were sure. plenty. Right. I've but like I things. didn't, I didn't. Yeah. See so that was big. And then what, what really did it for me was that, that that's what started to make me question politics. But then I came back and, uh, I had a year left at Florida state or a year, year and a half, something like that, whatever. It doesn't matter. And, uh, I did a couple more internships and I had a job offer on the table from the McCain campaign. Uh, I was going to go to Orlando to be a field operative Mm -hmm. for the McCain campaign. And this is back in, I graduated in the spring of 2008 and I just, that, that just didn't sound fun to me anymore. Partially because I'd been working for the last year part time for this political tech startup. I was working for this guy. His name was Justin Safey and, uh, he was Jeb Bush's communications director. He started this little business on the side called the safety review and I was working for him part time and I was like, this is fun. Like we are solving people's problems with this business. It was basically like an online news aggregator. It's like drudge report for Florida political news. Mm-hmm. Right. I was like, this sounds interesting. And so when McCain, when the McCain campaign made the offer, I called this guy up and I was like, Hey, I got this offer. I really don't want to do it. Uh, I think you need somebody to be like a full-time CEO of this business. Cause he wasn't running it full-time. He was a lobbyist. He was a lawyer. He was like financing it. And, uh, he just kind of laughed at my audacity as a 21 year old to like ask for a CEO job mm-hmm. right out of school. But he's like, sure. And so we like got on the phone we hammered out a job description. I started a week later. And so, yeah, that, that's kind of what led me down the uh, entrepreneurial path. Okay, so when now your your most recent book here that you're um, I'm I have we have a I've been looking at this advanced copy of it. So this isn't out yet. No, not when, out yet. Well, yeah. it depends on when we air this episode. Well, <laughs> it'll be soon. So yeah. when when is it? Uh, when when is this out? Yeah. So Master of One drops uh, January twenty first, twenty twenty. Awesome. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> so I mean, you know, it's the play on the yeah. old uh, uh, Jack of All Trades, yeah. Master of None, yep. right? And the idea of just being spread out so thin and kind of picking it, picking something to really sink your teeth into. Now, mm-hmm. as you look back at your own story, yeah. as I hear your story, I go, man, you've done a lot of different things. You've very you've, much a jack of all and, trades. And, 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 and even in the, and even as if you say, well, the one thing, and I don't know how you would define that one mm-hmm. thing, but I know even as someone that's entrepreneurial, it's like, well, entrepreneurship could be exactly right. that thing, right? Yeah. And so that gives you the freedom to go, well, yeah, I've done a lot of things, but I'm really working on one yeah. project. Do you want to, I, I, I guess like, cause it, cause it does appear that that's a lot. I mean like, it's a lot. Uh, yeah. Like, can you, I don't know, get, just shine a light on that a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah. and like, cause so it this seems, is, it's confusing. This is this, your question sets up the introduction for the book, Good. right? So, Let's do it. um, th- th- about halfway through 
about five years into my career, I had a mentor sit me down and I was trying to decide what I was going to do next professionally. I had sold my first company and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And he was like, you know, Jordan, you've done a lot of different things. Like, yeah. What's the thing that you're going big on? Like, what's the thing that you really want to sink your teeth into? And he wasn't saying it explicitly, but basically he was calling me a jack of all trades and a master of none. And he was a hundred percent right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I was good at a lot of different things, but I wasn't exceptional or world-class at any one of them. And that really bothered me. Not necessarily this idea of being a jack of all trades. I actually think that's the inevitable byproduct for most of us that explore and experiment a lot in our careers, which I think is healthy. Mm -hmm. I think you need range. I think you need uh, to have a wide variety of interests and experiences in order to find, well, especially early on, right? especially yeah. early on, yeah. in order to find the one thing yep. that you're going to be willing to commit to over a decade, two decades, three decades. Uh, and so for me, I define my one thing very broadly, right? Mm-hmm. My one thing is entrepreneurship. I'm very good at identifying gaps in the market, designing products to fill those gaps and setting up systems that don't need me uh, to manage them long-term so that Mm -hmm. those products thrive. Like that's entrepreneurship. It's what I did at Threshold 360. It's what I've done with previous ventures. It's what I do in writing. Books Mm -hmm. are just startups. You just start a new company every two years, right? Uh, You identify a gap in the market, you meet that customer's needs, and then you set up systems, in this case, publishing and distribution partners, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To make sure that that product scales and grows over time, right? So um, I talk a lot in the book about, I I think some people, a lot of people have been like very intrigued by the title of the book, Master of One. Some people are like, this is, I get it. I want to be a master of one. I hate being a jack of all trades and a master of none. But then other people I think are intimidated by it. It's like, how can there just be one thing that like ties my whole career together? And some of the advice I give is, um, uh, you know, I, I think some people's one thing is going to be very, very specific. And some people's one thing is going to be extremely broad. Like this guy, this guy named Bob Horton here in town, uh, he probably tunes half of the pianos in Tampa Bay. He's been a piano tuner for 33 years. It's all he's ever done. Hmm. And he's like world class at it. Sure. Like he's amazing. I love watching him. He's a true master craftsman. Um, his one thing is very specific. Bob tunes pianos. Yeah. But then I was clear. sitting down, I was talking with uh, C.S. Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham, who's mm-hmm. become a good friend. And uh, I was asking him to confirm that C.S. Lewis's one thing was writing. Like, I think we think of Jack, we think of C.S. Lewis, and of course he was a writer. And he like corrected me like right away. He's like, no, no, no. Like his one thing was far broader than that. He was a master teacher. Mm. And he applied that one thing in a few different contexts. He applied it to writing nonfiction. He applied it to writing fiction. He applied it to teaching the British people through BBC radio and teaching at Magdalen College for mm-hmm. 30 years. But it was very much one thing, and he thought of it as cultivating this one masterful skill as a teacher. And that was very helpful for me to wrap my head around this. Because I think most people in 2019, I think most people's one thing is quite broad, right? But if you can, if you can identify that, I think you could see how practically you're practicing, deliberately practicing that one thing in the various pursuits that you're uh, bigger in. Yeah, it's really interesting to me um, because I, I mean, even as I look at the work of the well and I go like, we're running a bike shop now. I had nothing to do with bikes. I wasn't riding bikes. I wasn't building bikes. And and actually the thing that has been interesting to me is like, I, I, I bet. Well, one is I realize I really like having to learn a new thing. So mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know anything about this and I need to learn as much as I can, as quick as I can mm-hmm. and get good enough fast. Right. Um, 
And I really enjoy doing that. And then, but I, but it is also a little like, okay, this thing's up and running. It's about to celebrate two years open in a retail storefront and it's doing pretty well. And I am, my mind is on what's next. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not, it's, it's a weird, it's like a, it's a, it's like a condition. Right. But it's, it's, but it's also, I see each of these things as building blocks or tools for a bigger, a bigger enterprise. It really is like, I, I mean, at the heart of it is once upon a time I met a homeless man and it broke my heart. And I was like, I don't want to live in a world where this brother is sleeping in an alley and I want to leverage everything that I can to change that. Well, it turns out I can turn a wrench for that. I can plant a garden for that. I can build a house for that. There's a lot of tools that I can use, but, but it's interesting. Cause like I felt really challenged by the sections of your book that I read for that exact reason. And I felt myself dancing back and forth between I'm always doing one thing, hmm. but I'm using every single tool available to me yeah. available to me. And I throw them down all the time because this one's not working or this one's working really well. And, and it feels, it looks like there's a million things happening. And the truth is I also, and I, I wonder if you'd respond to this and even if it's to correct me um, that a lot of times it's like many plates spinning is feels right to me. Mm. Right. Like it's almost like, yeah, I'm a, like, and occasionally a few drop, mm -hmm. but, but there's something about that where it's like, uh, uh, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, something that demands lots of attention and multiple things to pay attention to. It's like, yeah, multitasking is not advisable really. And yet at the same time, you know, being in one place working in the bike shop, but going, I've got to pay attention also to our free market or the community garden or this other thing that's going on. Like, I don't know, just, I guess, respond to yeah. me saying that, like, tell me a little bit of yeah. your thoughts. So I have respect for people who can do this well, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, who can manage many, many different things at the same time. Well, I can't, I'm not sure I manage it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. So, so, and, and here's the deal, right? Like, at the end of the day, master of one is a strategy. Yep. It's not the end. And it's a strategy towards um, what I think should be very motivating to all of us, which is to do our most exceptional work because work is how we serve the world. Mm -hmm. Work is how we love neighbor as self. It is one of the ways in which mm -hmm. we express loving neighbor as self. And, and we can't do that if we're not doing exceptional work mediocrity loves nobody right mm -hmm. like mastery loves people like yep. we are loved by people who are masters of their crafts and so for me uh the trajectory of my career has been always uh, continually pruning away things eliminating things from my plate professionally to get better and better at fewer and fewer things mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I, I i mean very recent example that you're familiar with right like i ran threshold mm -hmm. for two and a half years and I think I did an excellent job. Yeah. Uh, my board thinks I did an excellent job, and I'm very proud of that. Um, but I'll tell you what, like that was very hard because for for a period of time there, I was also marketing called the Create. You were already spending, doing that. Yeah, I was already doing that. The book mm -hmm. had been written right mm -hmm. before I took over as CEO, and I think I did that with excellence as well, mm -hmm. uh, but barely. By the grace of God, was yeah. I able to do both of those with excellence at the same time? And it became very clear to me that, okay, called to create it very well. It's a national best-selling book. I knew I wanted to write another book. I was like, there's just no way that I'm going to be able to do this with excellence while also running this company with excellence. 
I got to choose. Even yeah. though I saw it as applying one thing in sure. two contexts, yep, yep, yep. I had to choose. And I think that's a very personal decision. I think that's something that you've got to look within yourself and say, am I doing all of the things that I'm committed to with excellence? Am I serving the people I'm called to serve in each of these capacities to the best of my ability with everything else I've, uh, that I've got on my plate? And so for me, uh, it, I just realized, you know, that that wasn't possible long term if I was running this company and trying to continue to write. So it's one of the reasons why I decided to recruit a replacement for myself at Threshold. The other reason was I, I also knew I wasn't the right person to run that company in the next phase that it was mm -hmm, coming into, mm -hmm, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm a really good zero to one uh, startup CEO, right? I'm not the guy necessarily to go from one to 1.1 to 1.2. Sure, like that's sure. not interesting to me. Um, and it's just not my skill set. So yep. we found a guy who's way more qualified than me and is doing a fantastic job running the venture awesome. now. Yeah. You know, uh, are you familiar with the St. Francis quote, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible. And suddenly you're doing the impossible. Yeah. You've heard that. I mean, he may or may not have actually said <laughs> right, that, right? right? Who knows? But, um, all these saints, we misattribute quotes. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody Franciscan, maybe, uh, the spirit of the thing. What yeah. I, um, I've always, I've always cherished that quote and actually thought of it a, a little bit as a roadmap for myself mm -hmm. because you know and, and and the reason I think of this is it's it's part of well I, Will and I mm -hmm. you know lived in community together and we used to joke we do everything wrong the first time mm -hmm. um, we because we would jump into things and just start uh, and and so part of the thing you know there's folks that are hungry right mm -hmm. so it's like well grabbed a pickup truck and a cardboard box yeah. and we threw some food in it and get it out to some folks that need it. Right. There's nothing particularly dignifying about that. Mm -hmm. You look back on it and there's a little, it's ugly. It's almost mm -hmm. shameful, but, mm -hmm. but it is food mm -hmm. where there was hunger. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, all right, cool. There is a necessity here and you need to do that almost by any means necessary. Like we you need to get that thing done. Yeah. But then in time, and I'll take like one of our community dinners, we, we ran a, a Thursday night dinner called the banquet. And at first we partner with Metropolitan Ministries and we get food in a Cambro and we set up some plastic tables and we have some paper plates and we scoop it out and there's a line of folks and they can sit down in this fluorescent light room that a church let us use. And it's, it, it, you know, it's food, right? It's a meal. It's cool. It's, we felt good about it, I guess. But then in time I was like, this is ugly and, and not dignifying. Mm -hmm. And so I went to found another partner church and said, Hey, will you help us afford some tablecloths and some centerpieces and some candles and some Christmas lights? Cause we're going to kill the fluorescent lights. And we, what was interesting that I learned so much from doing this, but we, um, we, we turned it into like a romantic setup, right? Yeah. Like we had waiters, we plated the food. We didn't, you'd never see the cameras. They're hidden in the back. We had waiters come out and it was a, it was a lot more work to do it that way, but it felt so right to do it that way. But what was really interesting to me is to learn the environmental impact on people. So we created a place where it was easier to be good. Uh, folk and, and, and historically we had folks, you know, folks on the streets, you have a lot of mental illness, a lot of addiction, a lot of fighting, and people would come in and try to kill each other over dinner. And, you know, someone would throw a chair across the room and be like, Oh, you can't act that way right. here. And it was really, it took a lot of attention and behavior and then we changed the environment hmm. and all of a sudden everyone was polite, hmm. courteous, please pass the salt. And I was like, yo, this is so weird. Right. We, same we, people, same people, right. same, the exact same people. Yeah. Like that's still Freddie and, and the exact same people, but like everything changed about the way that people interacted together. 
And, and to me, I went, you know, there was a way in which, I don't know, it was like, well, first of all, food was necessary. But then you go, well, what's possible here? And actually what trans, there was something like we did the impossible, which was like some like redemption of behavior in this space. And actually a platform for real relationship and connection that took place because of small changes around that. Now, I'll tell you all that to ask you. Um, because I, I generally start out in the first version, right? I go, Oh, there's something I need to do here and it's going to look like crap. Mm -hmm. Right. So even, even looking at you starting a podcast and then I started a podcast, I go, Oh, I could tell you go in and do things really (laughs) well. Right. Like you rented the right, you get rented the right space. You got the right equipment you do. And, and, and one like good work. Thanks. Like legit. And then, but then I, it, it, there's something between you and I that I think is really interesting to me. And I, I just curious if you, if you see it and can speak to it where it's like, Oh yeah, you did your business. Your first business plan mm-hmm. might as well have been done with a crayon mm-hmm. me. Right. And it's true. It's and like too. good yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Good enough. Yeah. Uh, what do you, what do you make of good enough Man, or, or better done question. than perfect? So I'll say this. The podcast is the exception ah. in my entrepreneurial story. So like I'm a huge believer in the lean startup. Okay. Right? I'm a huge believer in minimum viable products. Get the cheapest, quickest, dirtiest version of this thing out there in order to test it and iterate as quickly as possible. Okay. So in, in, in that world, good enough uh, is somewhat good enough, right? You're always striving for excellence. But, for but, now, but, yeah. But, but, Excellence is confined to a limited feature set. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the feature oh, set is small, right? Mm-hmm. And what, whatever you do within that feature set has to be excellent, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then you grow it and grow it and grow it over time. So but th- here's why the podcast was the exception. Uh, and I'm in this like weird space trying to like navigate these waters now. Uh, we, <laughs> we, 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 we had an audience. We had 100,000 people who were asking for a podcast. Mm, it wasn't mm. like I was starting from nothing. Right. So it had to be great from deliver. day one. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. It, right? That it, it was like the first time in my in my uh, entrepreneurial journey where that was like really apparent to me. So that was that was really tough. I will say this though, like in startups, speed is everything. Speed is excellence in mm, startups, right? Mm, like being an excellent mm. entrepreneur is uh, at its core learning as quickly as Fast, possible. Yep. And that requires tremendous speed and just hmm. shipping, you know, done is better than perfect as mm-hmm, Facebook likes mm-hmm. to say. That said, one of the themes that came up in all of my research of academic literature, of business literature, and my interviews for Master of One is, uh, I'm sure you've heard of this, right? That the principle of purposeful practice. Masters practice on purpose, yes, right? Yes. They don't just practice their craft, they practice, and that the elements of purposeful practice, one of them is this idea of frequent discomfort. Masters are never satisfied. Good enough is never good enough for people who are pursuing mastery of their vocation. I think that's a good way to think about it. And as an entrepreneur, you're always in this, you know, build, test, learn, quickly, iterate, you know, process. And that's fine, right? But you're always raising the bar. You're always putting more weight on the bar. Good enough is never good enough uh, for the entrepreneur, anyone in any discipline. Does that make sense at all? No, it makes perfect sense. And I actually, the, what was the, something discomfort was frequent discomfort. So that really stood out to me. Um, and I actually think about this a lot in, in my faith. So, um, I, I guess there, okay. So like when I was younger, well, actually where Will and I moved, we moved into kind of a rough neighborhood, living in community, say, man, we're going to welcome the poor into our house and this and that. And 
there was a level of like, let's say anxiety, nervousness, mm -hmm. like it's out of control. Sure. Yeah. Right. But over time it becomes familiar. And I noticed that I always, I learned to associate nervousness with following Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I was like, Hey, if I'm comfortable, like, yeah, it's a rough neighborhood, but as soon as I'm comfortable with it, there's something else I need to engage mm -hmm. in. Right. There was a way in which it's like, well, you're, we're called to walk into dark places. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that becomes like kind of home, well then I'm, com I'm comfortable here. And the, the idea of like frequent discomfort, mm -hmm. there was something there. Like I actually use discomfort a bit as a gauge mm -hmm. of like faithfulness where I'm like, actually, if I'm comfortable with this, well, one that could start equal boredom as well, yeah. yep. but also it means I'm not pushing my capacity here. And, and, and there's something about, I don't know, I feel like God leads us into scary places. And if it's not scary, then you're probably being led to the next, the next step of the, of the, the journey there. Yeah. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, the life that Jesus called us to is like incredibly uncomfortable mm -hmm. for, for, especially for modern day listeners to hear. Right. Like, uh, and so I do think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I don't think we're called to, I, I like that you use the word nervousness. I think that's a good word because we're not called to be anxious, right? Jesus said, sure. cast all your anxieties be on me. Yep. Uh, my burden is light. Um, but yeah, this idea of discomfort, I think I, 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 it's interesting. I've been thinking so much of that in the context of how do we pursue mastery of a craft? But I do think that's an interesting way to think about apprenticeship to Jesus, right? Mm. Like if I am comfortable and where I'm at in, in living out what apprenticeship to Jesus looks like, that's probably, I probably need to put more weight on the bar. Now, somebody that, uh, I wanted to ask you about, cause you, you, at least in the first book, yeah. I know referenced her a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Dorothy Sayers. Yeah. So her essay, why work Love it. is, um, yeah, it's been so important to me. And honestly, I would say is the origin story of even this podcast. Really? So yeah, like I, um, I, it's interesting. So I, yeah, I don't even, I don't, I don't know exactly how to follow the journey back, but I, I started having, I, I mean, I read that and along with some other things that I just had some deep convictions about the role of work and frustration around the idea that we tie work with, uh, not vocation with, um, career so that it's trade or job. Like, Oh, tell me your first memory of work. And you tell me about your first job, which is a common question I'll ask folks here or whatever. And I'm like, man, we work at all kinds of things. And I believe we were created to work to yeah. like, we were like the gift of the garden, you yeah. know, is there was work to be done. And, and I think there's major overlap maybe in our, in our vocation or our interest in this area. And, um, and I, I guess I was just curious, like, I, I never hear anyone talk about this article. <laughs> I actually, I, I, I want to help repopularize it. I'm like, yeah. everybody needs to know about this article and, uh, or this essay or whatever we want to call yeah. it. Um, but yeah, like, where did you, where did you find it? Yeah. What is it meant to you? It seems like it was a big shaping uh, huge, I mean, yeah, I hear it in a lot of what you say. So, um, the work I do now, everything I do is really centered around the themes of that essay. So the mission of Jordan Rainer and company, and there is a team building around me now is we exist to help Christians do their most exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others, not for their own fame, not, not for their own fortune. And inherent in that is helping every Christian understand why work's important in the first place? Why? What is the eternal significance uh, of 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 my work? And this, 
very much started with Dorothy Sayers, although I came across Sayers uh, by way of Tim Keller uh, in mm. Tim Keller's oh, yeah, book, Every Good a, Endeavor. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, uh, and that's kind of the origin story of the work I'm doing today. So five years ago, uh, we had just, we had a very, very tiny, teeny, inconsequential acquisition uh, of a company that I ran called Citizen Investor. And this is back in 2014, 2015. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next professionally. Uh, I was pretty sure I wanted to start another business, but um, I went to church one Sunday and we had this guest preacher and he was talking about the need for church planters to go and plant churches all across the world. And I just started feeling a very familiar guilt that here I was oh. thinking about starting another business, making more money, when, you know, also creating more jobs. Uh, and rather than moving into a mud hut 5,000 miles away from home. Yeah, you're like, like I know a, I can start things. Yeah, I can build things. That's I can exactly do right. things. And, and God is calling me to use right. these this skills. This is a more God-honoring use of my time and my That's talents. why every young leader thinks they're supposed to be a pastor. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's and so it was. I, 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 I fell into this trap of thinking that I was called to my most hated term, quote unquote, full time ministry. Mm. And so I started praying about it. And by the grace of God alone, there was a mentor in my life who pulled me aside, who loved Jesus, and he's like, "Hey, I, I know you're thinking about planting a church. What in the world are you thinking? Like you are." passionate about entrepreneurship more importantly way more importantly you're gifted at it you've created jobs you've created wealth why do you think that this isn't ministry don't you understand that the work that you do as an entrepreneur is a way of creating jobs creating wealth loving neighbor itself and i looked at this guy like he had three heads i had no idea what he was talking about so he gave me a copy of tim keller's book every good endeavor and it totally changed my life and in that book is dorothy sayers part of dorothy sayers essay why work and you know keller just pointed me pointed us back to the garden and and remembering that first of all this is something that i keep coming back to christianity is the only religion the bible is the only religious text that says that god himself worked Mm. every other religion says that the god's created human beings to work and to serve the gods yep, only yep. the bible says and by the way starts with god saying no i roll up my sleeves mm-hmm. i create i'm productive i work mm-hmm. and that gives dignity and meaning to any line of god honoring work works that essentially work that's not illegal or unethical right sure, sure we work because god worked we work because we are made in the image of god and when we work we are revealing the first characteristic that he revealed to us in scripture right that that's beautiful that's yeah. really beautiful uh and so that realization was just mind-blowing to me i finally saw my work as an entrepreneur as not just ministry but maybe my primary means of yeah. ministry in this world of revealing the character of a working god uh of of loving neighbor self and making disciples right and so um that's what set me down the path to write called to create i was um Every Good Endeavor was this like very high level why all work matters, same as Dorothy Sarah's great essay, which everybody I hope will read. Yeah, you guys have to read that, yeah. But then I had very specific questions about, okay, how, what does that look like as an entrepreneur specifically, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that's when I went out and just started interviewing people and asking questions about how their how the gospel specifically transforms their view on business and how you create great companies that love people well so that that's what manifests itself in called to create now you've talked to a lot of people from a lot of different fields uh around some of those questions are there any like major themes that aren't i mean just that just oh interestingly enough i have found this to be true across all over the place that's a really good question um i think a lot of the conversations center around ambition and like, 
huh. why we are ambitious, right? Because okay. a lot of the people I, I'm talking to, if they're world class at what they do, they're naturally like very ambitious people. But I think almost all these people go through a journey of ambition being primarily selfish at the beginning of that journey. And the gospel uh, reminding them that their ambition should be focused on others first, right? And so a lot of these people that I talk to are kind of surprised by this shift in ambition that happens of I was motivated by money. I was motivated by accumulating wealth and accumulating mostly status, right? Mm -hmm. Being viewed as successful in the eyes of the world. Uh, and now recognizing that my identity is secure in who Jesus Christ says I am, I have reoriented my ambition for my business. I'm still ambitious, but I'm ambitious primarily for um, serving more customers and helping more customers solve their problems uh, and, and, and giving right and, and being radically generous with with that wealth so that's been a big that's been a big common theme in a lot of these conversations um i i think the other one is like just going above and beyond uh what is necessary to earn a profit and like it, just being radically generous in how you serve customers right like um i i just think about it, it's kind of this like extra mile service right i think chick-fil-a yeah. like embodies this like really really well like we don't do uh, just enough to like make the transaction. We go above and beyond because that's what we feel. That's what we feel is an expression of loving neighbor uh, as self. I think. I think the third one, maybe the third final theme that I hear a lot from entrepreneurs is um, being. I think we. I, I think it's easy to think about being radically generous with customers and uh, loving customers well, but loving employees well, yeah. right? Like really understanding that your team is is audience number one. Uh, I think Arthur Guinness did this like incredibly well. Like we, we think Google and Microsoft treat their employees well today. Like Arthur Guinness. This is Guinness, the beer. Guinness, yeah, the yeah, brewery yeah, 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 yeah. was like unbelievably radical in the way that he thought about treating his employees, paying for... Uh, his employees, kids, college tuition, sending families on week-long va vacations, paying for vacations for weeks, two weeks at a time, uh, providing meals for all the family. And like Guinness, the, the product itself mm -hmm. was a means of loving that community. I mean, Guinness started brewing beer in response to the gin craze. He saw it as a healthier way uh, of, of providing alcohol to the people of Ireland. So Guinness's story is always one of my favorites. But you see that theme in a lot of the conversations I have. What do you, man, gosh, it's really good. Okay. So I'm curious, um, with the idea of leveraging business for the good of the world, right? Uh, the good of your neighbor, yep. lo loving neighbors, loving employees. There's there. Well, one is I think that there's more and more of a, there's an emerging language around things like social entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and, you know, B Corps, the emergence of B Corps, or even the most recent business roundtable where they're starting to rethink the, you know, bringing in the language of stakeholders uh, in addition to or with than just shareholders, right? As the as the purpose of business. Um, I'm curious what just, I don't know, your thoughts around that whole conversation. And, and I mean, it seems to me that, I don't know, if you were to try to differentiate, like, well, okay, you got entrepreneurship, what might make an entrepreneur social, a social entrepreneur. Not that there's some real clear definition around this thing, but I think, I think I would say probably something around a priority around the, the, the communal impact mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe the market impact, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, they're both there. Um, but going, yeah, I, I started with, I don't know, like, like I could take my own example with well-built bikes is like, actually it's transportation and access 
to folks that are cut off and have they're cut off with access to meet a lot of their own more basic needs. And we can do that. Now we were originally doing that just by like, there's bikes, there's tools, build them. And the enterprise part of that, the business part of that just came because we needed to sustain it. Like I can, can only give away so many bikes before I have to pay some bills, you know? <laughs> and so maybe we should sell a few of these bikes. And so it was, it was secondary for the sake of the mission. It was necessary for the sake of the mission. And, and I don't know, I, in some sense I go, well, I don't think it's anything particularly special. I think it's just, well, one, I think it's smart. It's just like, oh, this is the best way forward. And ultimately, I think it's where business is going to end up. Like business is going to move, I believe, toward like, so you're putting a lot of this language in kind of like, this is a call from God to love your neighbor, but from even more just secular business brand marketing. It's like, no, you need to care for your customers. You yeah. need to take care of your it's employees. Basic you business. you yeah. need to do good for the world. Yeah. Like, yeah, just, I don't know, reflect on that a little bit yeah, of like sure. this emerging language. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think, l- let me say this. If somebody's listening to this episode is already running a business, maybe they ran it they've been running it for five, 10 yep. years. Mm-hmm. I want them to understand that their work is ministry, mm-hmm. right? Can be ministry uh, every day. Um, that said, if you're thinking about starting a business, I think this conversation is particularly applicable. Yeah. I think the the businesses that are really interesting to me right now are, and you say social enterprise, um, you know, whatever, whatever label you want to call it. I think the difference here is starting with impact, starting with why, starting about what is this thing about? What is the change we're trying to produce in the world and then identifying a business model to make that thing sustainable. So um, in entrepreneurial circles, there's this phrase called product market fit, right? Like you want to find a product, you have an idea for a product, you want to find a market uh, that's going to buy that product to make sure those things fit. Uh, I've heard Dave Blanchard, who's the CEO of Praxis, uh, and basically an accelerator for Christian-led startups that I'm a huge fan of, hmm. talk about like impact market fit, right? So there's this kingdom impact I want to have in my community, in the world. How do I find a business model to bring that to life? I'll give you a great example. Good. So uh, there's this company that I love called Nextdoor Photos. They're based out of Grand Rapids and their mission is to provide employment uh, for women exiting the sex trade, right? Uh, and so the way that they do that is they have basically they're basically it's kind of similar to threshold 360 they have built a team of photographers to go do they're doing real estate photography right but on-demand real estate photography guaranteed turnaround times 48 hours uh but they take people out of the sex trade they place them into these jobs right these are fair and they pay them fairly well right and they built a significant business but the business was secondary right they they saw an opportunity in the market to own residential real estate photography but that wasn't what drove them right what drove them was this impact and they were able to find a business model to make that sustainable and they're doing millions of dollars a year in revenue and like really scaling this model they're in 30 markets right now uh and i'm just a huge huge fan of what they're doing but that that's it that's a good example i think of what you're going to continue to see yeah so one of the things in the um in dorothy sayers why work article that oh that that i remember that really stood out to me is and is that basic i'm not going to be able to quote this and i should have printed it out for today because i would have loved to have read a quote from it but Something along the line, she, it's like, uh, one, I love the like kick in the butt to the church that this is, but just 
correcting the church saying like, how dare you say to the Mason or to the, you know, construction worker or whatever that like, you know, basically they're like, you know, just, just don't drink and then come in here and, uh, you know, do work at the church or, you know, you're going to come help with parking or you're going to come, you're going to come do, you know, air quote church work, um, apart from your, rather than saying lay brick, well, build, you know, build meaningful buildings, like do, do your work. Yeah. Okay, good. good. Here's the quote. So this is Dorothy Sayers quote, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk there and disorderly is. in the leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables, mm-hmm. right? I love it. Yes. I love it. So preach. Go ahead. Get well, on, get no, 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 that's it, man. I, I just, I like, I... I so, I so love like, and, and this is what even around the, the, around the com- this conversation, this is what really ignited this for me is I'm just like, man, I, this is so valuable. And to be honest, like, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of what we, what the church is doing to begin with. So yeah. like, yeah. To, to, it's like, this isn't, you know, it's like, like, for example, we go sing worship songs and it's not, not even good music, right? right? Like it's, like it's, it's generally it's speaking. It's yeah. It's yeah. like, Oh, we do, yeah. we do bad music. We yeah. make bad movies. We yeah. write bad books. Oh. We, you know, and, and, and Getting we, on my soapbox. here we go. Come well, yeah. No, what I'm trying to do is set you up to go ahead and do that. Right. Is to say like, cause it's, it's like we, we do mediocre, mediocre work. Cause we think it's, well, it's for good reasons or something like that. Yeah. That's crap. Where, where it's like, yeah, we're gonna put we're gonna put this message into crap, basically, yeah. right? Rather than to go, I, you know, I don't know, take like a Michelangelo or something like that, right? Someone that's gonna do great work that inspires awe, that uh, that conveys almost that embodies the me- I, that might be the right word that doing something that embodies the values of the kingdom rather than tell me a terrible story that's exactly it right so if i if i forget remind me to rant about the quote-unquote christian film industry in a minute okay uh so (laughs) so we are made in the image of god we are made in the image of the creator god who i call and call to create the first entrepreneur Mm. this being that took something uh, to created something out of nothing established order out of chaos created for the good of others and he created with excellence how can you walk into the world and not see excellence is, is too short of a word he creates with perfection yeah right? and the very first thing he does after he creates is he passes the baton of creation to you and me yeah. and he says the first thing he tells us to do is go you are in my image fill the earth subdue the earth it's a it's a call to much more than just procreation it's a call to cultural creation to cultivation and and civilization it's gardening right and if we believe that if we believe that we are made in his image and our job as children of god is to show the world what our father is like 
then we ought to have exceptionally high standards for mm-hmm. our work and for mm-hmm. what we create and for whatever it is that we do. And you look around and you see Christians producing crap yeah. uh, and it's a living lie, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way that we minister to the world at the most fundamental level is through the ministry of excellence. It's by making great tables. It's by writing great songs. It's by making great films. And, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll use Hollywood as one example of yeah. this, but you look at the quote-unquote Christian film industry, and I got a really big problem with Christians spending their time and their energy producing these really big, they're not even mediocre, they're just really bad films. And listen, as an entrepreneur, I get it. These films are wicked profitable, right? If you make, if Mm. you create subculture, which is what these films are, right? If you create these films, uh, Christians creating films for other Christians to see, and basically nobody else outside of the church is seeing them, that's a very profitable thing. You can make those movies for a million bucks and you can guarantee that you're going to do 12 million bucks at the box office from mega churches sending their uh, members to go see these films. It's profitable, but is it advancing the kingdom? Gosh. I don't think so. I don't think so. And so, you know, mediocrity is winsome to nobody. And so you have these uh, filmmakers and it's not just in film. You see it in literature. You see it in music that start with message rather than mastery of their craft, mm. right? And that's where you get in, in, into trouble, right? Mm-hmm. I think Lecrae is a good example of this on the opposite side. Okay, Lecrae is seemingly focused on just writing great music. The message is secondary, and the message, his Christian message tends to make its way into some of his stuff, but it's, but it's you know, sure. I, I would argue somewhat rare, right? But he's just focused on being the best artist he can be, and guess what? Lecrae is winsome and appealing to people inside and outside yeah. of the church because he's focused on mastering his craft before he is preaching that particular message. So C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, you know, we do not need more Christian books. We need more Christians writing great books. Well, and I think that's the perfect way to say it. And I think Dorothy Sayers actually says something like this. I could be wrong, but doesn't it, isn't there something like there and almost to say there is no such thing as a Christian movie or a Christian book or it's like there are Christians (laughs) who make movies, who make movies, but like the idea that a play, like what, what would make it Christian? Right. Well, that it embodied the message that it was done well, that it was, you know, that you, you built great buildings, you wrote great stories, you made great songs. It's like, but, but to say, Oh, it's Christian because of its what it's content or yeah. you put the, I, it makes me think of, um, did you, I don't, I don't imagine you watch much South park. Uh, yeah. I, I've watched, I've watched a little bit. But have not you, a lot. Have yeah. you seen Cartman make, he became the top of the Christian no, charts. No. So he became a Christian musician and all he did was he took love songs and put Jesus name in them. And some of them are Ooh, that's, nasty. That's painfully some of them are like nasty, like sexual songs, yeah, and he just yeah. like threw Jesus' name in them, and it's like, which they're just hilariously uh, 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 profane on that show. But like, it was, it was, it was exactly that. He's like, oh yeah, I just rose to the top of the charts because it's now it's I baptized all of these terrible, terrible songs or whatever, and um, that's a sad caricature. Yeah, but 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 inaccurate. Uh, well, okay. Yeah. So if you can say like, uh, you know, well, one, I just talking about like the idea of you saying these are profitable, I mm-hmm. uh, ma- makes my stomach turn a little mm-hmm. bit that it like, they're this, super this, profitable. We're going to, yeah, yeah, that is, we will just exploit this population yeah. for this reason. And, but and listen, I, I, let me give you a correct. It's not exploitation, right? Because there's a large subculture of people who want this stuff. 
who who want subculture, right? Mm. There's a market. Uh, uh, otherwise, these people would be making these films. So in some part, you can't blame the filmmakers exclusively. There's people buying this stuff. Sure. Right? Uh, and, and listen, like, that's okay. If you love the movie War Room, I'm okay with that. All I'm saying is... I think it's a better use of the church's time and energy and creative talents to extend the kingdom rather than uh, producing quote unquote art that's only seen by our subculture yeah. uh, that that is cloistered off from the rest of the world. Is that hitting that too hard? Hopefully. No, no, that's great, man. So, okay, so this leads me up to a question yeah. I've been trying to ask everybody: how how would you define success? Ooh, I thought you were going to say work. Success may be easier. Um, we'll do that next then. <laughs> you can edit out my long pause here. No. Uh, <laughs> how would you define success? Um, I would define success as doing the work that I believe I have been put on this earth to do with excellence and service of those I'm called to serve. Yeah. I think that's how I would define success. I May mean, uh. come come back to me and but you know just finding what is the what is the best expression of my unique gifts, uh, of my interests and applying those to serving others. Like I think that's success. And and oh by the way, oftentimes, more often than not, that also comes with quote unquote economic success, right? If I, if I'm loving the market really well, the market's going to respond profit, uh, uh, positively to that sure. and generate a profit for me and the business. But that's not the primary, uh, indicator of success. I, I think you could be successful and not have a uh, tremendous economic windfall, right? Yeah. That. Yeah. That yeah. Sense? Sure. Absolutely. Well, yeah. It depends on the enterprise you're engaged in. Yeah, you could be yeah, very yeah. successful at non-economic work. Right. Right. Um, successful at playing violin or whatever, yeah. you know? I don't know why I chose that example, but, um, okay. Well, what about work? You, you thought I was going to ask you to define yeah. work. Do that. Jeez. Um, I, I think work is just, I, I, I almost want to just say being productive. Like I, I don't, I, I don't think work, uh, necessarily means that you earn a paycheck for something. No, right. So, my wife doesn't earn a paycheck, uh, but she works That's right. harder than me every day yep. um, in running our home and taking care of our children. And, and um, yep. I, I, I think work is work is what it was in the garden. I think work is what it was when God created it. It is tending creation. It is mm -hmm. gardening. It is taking the raw elements of this world, mm -hmm. right? That God has given us. Uh, those are physical elements those are mental spiritual elements and rearranging them in new and creative ways to create something new and good and helpful to others like that's maybe that's too utopian a view of work but like i kind of think that's the point like that's what work was pre-fall yeah, right? yeah so yeah. so i think i think when we think about how do you define work i think you got to go back to the creator of work you yeah, got to go back to genesis 1 to genesis 2 and see what was work pre-sin and work pre-sin was this beautiful act of gardening of taking what god gave us and mixing it up in different ways to create new things for the good of humankind now 
there's something future oriented around work, I think, right? Where it goes like, it's about like, I plant a seed. So tomorrow there's a harvest. It, there, there, there is something like a relationship to time yeah. engaged in work. Like I lift heavy weights so that I produce muscles later or I work at whatever. It's, it's, it's investing in tomorrow's reality mm. in some way. Um, and so in that sense, I think it, and I'm just curious if you've thought a lot about this or if, if not do, do now just respond to this maybe, but like it's relationship or it's similarity to sacrifice. So like we're familiar with biblical ideas. Like I sacrifice this goat, this fruit, this whatever. And it and somehow is about the future investing in the future. Um, but, and in that way I go, it's just like work and we still use the same language. Like I sacrificed this mm. time so that I could work in college or mm. work on this for tomorrow's reality. And I don't know, just maybe respond or reflect on that. Yeah. A little bit. It reminds me of uh, Paul in Romans 12, one calling us to be living sacrifices yep. with our whole lives. Yep. And I mean, what's Paul doing? Paul's from Jewish background. Paul's pointing us back to the old Testament, right? And in the old Testament, when um, when the people were to make sacrifices, God demanded their very best, right? God demanded the spotless lamb uh, because he is worthy of that, right? And so, okay, how does that apply to our work? Man, I think it applies to our work by saying we will settle for nothing less than our absolute best work, yeah. our most exceptional work. And that requires great sacrifice, yeah. Right. So it requires that I say no to more things that many more things than yeah. I say yes to so that I can be the very best author or entrepreneur or gardener or craftsman that I possibly can be because I see that as I'm, I'm sacrificing myself. I'm sacrificing all these things that I'm saying no to yeah. in order to do the thing that I'm saying yes to this call that I feel that God has placed on my life to the very, very best of my ability to put forth that spotless lamb of work, if yeah. it will. Does that make sense? Yep. No, it makes perfect sense. And you, so you said, you know, even recently you said, well, I had to decide to step away yeah. from my role with threshold yeah. to say yes to this endeavor yeah. with writing and speaking yeah. and, and kind of leading this Which kind of campaign around. Right. And so there is a sacrifice to be made there. Um, and you've done that throughout your life. Um, of course, everybody makes decisions and I actually, I'm fascinated even with the concept of decisions. So my understanding, right, is even the word, uh, you know, an incision is to cut into something and a decision is to cut something off. Mm. So it's like to make a decision is to sever yeah. off. So it's, it's every yes implies a million no's, Absolutely. right? It's like, and, and so I think uh, I want to say I want to say it was G.K. Chesterton that said like you know people have these problems with thou shalt not but thou shalt not is just the other side of the coin to you will mm. I will live in Tampa and I will not live in Miami like right. it's like you can't be in both places right and so every yes is a bunch of no's and you kind of saying like just now like it's I know what to say no to mm. I, I would love to hear you just maybe muse a little bit more on the yeah. idea of decision making. And saying no, I mean, especially around this idea of like, I'm saying yes to one thing. I want to mm. master yeah. one thing. Hopefully that brings some clarity to what you're going to say no to. Yeah. Although at times it's, it's hard it's to hard. tell. There yeah. are a lot of distractions that disguise themselves at opportunities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, and how do you discern and decide and yeah. know when to say no? 
Man, that's a good question. This is what the this is what a third of Master of One is all about. Okay. Right? It, it is so I talk about the path to mastery. How do we get world class at whatever it is we want to do? First step is exploration, right? You've got to take time to explore and experiment widely. Uh, you know, my, my kids are five and three, and Ellison, my oldest, is um starting to show an aptitude for athletics. Uh, if for mm. some I'm five foot six. Somehow Ellison's gonna be like six foot two. I I don't know how that's going to happen. Awesome. She's like wicked tall. <laughs> um, she's an incredible swimmer. And so part of me is tempted to say, double down on it now, right? Double down. You're only going to do swimming. But I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's yeah. good. And uh, David Epstein is, is writing about this in his book, Range, right now, which I think is really good and complimentary to Master of One. Um, no, they need to explore a lot of different things so that you can make a more confident choice yeah, right? Yeah, later yeah. in life. And I do think we're asking kids to choose their quote-unquote one thing way too early in life right now. Yeah. But you got to explore widely in order to make a confident decision say, this is the thing. This is the thing I'm doubling down on I'm going to get great in. Uh, and then from there, once you've chosen, so step one is explore. Step two is choose. Step three is eliminate, ruthlessly eliminate everything that is not in line with pursuing mastery of your one thing. And then the fourth step is master and kind of the key to mastery but in terms of the decision itself you know i think um i have thought a lot about this i researched a lot of this for the book i you know i think when you're in this period of experimentation in your career you're going to come up against uh, a decision probably multiple times of whether or not you're going to persevere and continuing to go down the career path that you've been on or this path of work that you've been on or are you going to pivot Right. And, and, and take the skills that you've learned and pivot into something tangential or, or maybe totally different. And the decision of pivots like pretty easy. I think like, frankly, I think we're all way too good at pivoting from one mm-hmm. thing to another. The decision to persevere is what's tough. Mm. Right. And some advice I give, especially to young people, I, I was just speaking to a, a group of college students out in California about this. You know, if you think you found the thing that you can be great at in service of neighbor, uh, you know, remember that one, no decision uh, is forever, right? So you're not, you you don't know when Fred Rogers said, I'm going to start Mr. Rogers neighborhood. He had no idea he was going to do it for 30 or 40 years. Yep. He just knew this is what was best next. So be encouraged by that. Secondly, um, remember that there's no right decision. I think Mm-hmm. Christians in particular have like fallen for this lie that there is this one magical right thing for me to do. Oh, and they're paralyzed by life. They're right? paralyzed. So you don't by make it. any decision, which is the absolute wrong decision. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's very like well said. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're, we're just like paralyzed by indecision. We can come back to the idol of calling if you want to here in a minute, because uh, I, I I do oh, think there's some ugliness yep. mm-hmm. of that there. Uh, and then the third is just remembering that if you want to do your your most exceptional work and make your most exceptional contribution to the world. In my opinion, there is, there is an imperative to make a decision, right? You got to make a decision. And so when you're thinking about that, I found it helpful to ask, what am I interested in? Uh, what am I passionate about? If that's your, uh, your, your favorite word choice, way more importantly, what am I gifted at? Where in my life do I see that I am truly meeting the needs of others and serving others? Well, Uh, And then if you still can't narrow it down to one thing from there, I would ask, okay, of everything that I'm good at and passionate about, what is the very best uh, path for me to love my neighbors myself? I'll come back to threshold. So Hmm. I loved running that company. I really, running threshold for two and a half years was one of the best seasons professionally for me, Hmm. maybe the best, but I also loved writing. 
right? Mm-hmm. I really loved expressing these ideas through words, uh, in books and podcasts, whatever. And so the decision for me, I had two things that could have been my one thing. Um, the decision for me came down to what am I most, what am I uniquely qualified to do? Cause at the end of the day, there are probably a hundred, maybe a thousand people in this world that could have run Threshold 360 as CEO as well, if not better yeah. than I could have. The list of people who could have written on these topics for book after book after book and were raising their hands to say, I want to do it. I, I couldn't find anybody. I was the only one out there saying, I think the church needs voices like mine to write 25 books, helping the church connect the gospel to their work. I'm willing to do it. And I seem to be the only one willing to do it. So that, that made that decision very, very clear to me. Lots of people could do this other thing. Lots of people could do this thing I'm doing now, but I was the only one raising my hand volunteering to do it. So that's what I chose. I, I love what you're doing, by the way. And it's funny listening to you say that it's like nobody's there that wants to do this. And, and like I, it's interesting between you and I. Yeah. I am similarly gripped by this question around work and vocation yeah. and, and God's purposes for his yeah. people. Um, but I am probably less inclined to engage direct. Like you introduce your podcast. This is for Christian listeners yeah. where yeah. I'm like, Explicitly, yeah. I'm like, uh, Hey listeners, I'm going to occasionally have a bunch right, of right. Christians because right, these right. are my people right, on, right. you know, but this isn't, I have not framed my, my intention in the conversation. Although it is a bit of, I will, if I'm honest, it is like, I, I don't differentiate that a lot because yeah. there's a lot of people. Well, Let's put it this way. I don't know that I believe anyone's definition of themselves yeah. as Christian sure. or not yeah, Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, not, I there's that. a decision to be made, but also there's a behavior that matters yeah. where I'm like, I really want to engage in this conversation with everyone. And, and for me, I mean, I do. And so it's like, oh, this is, it is distinct. Um, and, and, but I'm so glad that you are doing it. Cause like, what a desperate, what a, what a desperate need there is for in the world. And then particularly in the church, like yeah. that we've lost our way, so to speak, in the way that we think about mission work and yeah. this and that. And actually, I, I want to circle back. You said we can come back to the idol of calling. Yeah, yeah. That really stood out to me, especially with someone going kind of, as you say, like, so the idea of a master of one, I almost seems to imply yeah. calling. Yeah. Yeah. But then it to does. hear yeah. you say an idol of calling. Yeah. And, and so I'll just tell you what immediately jumps out to me, sure. my own frustration, right? So people talk about like, well, there's a couple versions of this. So, man, this is why I'm not the guy that can talk to the church. Because, <laughs> like, people will come talk to me and say, hey, you know, God is calling me away from this thing or to do this thing. And I am, I have almost zero respect for that. Um, because I just think it's fickleness. It's baptizing your fickleness. It's blaming God or calling on, saying, oh, this arbitrary voice that I'm, probably making up, you know, cause God, you know, look, if God calls you to do so, and the only response to that is like, go like God's calling me to quit. Good. Bye. Like there's nothing to talk about yeah. if that's what's happening. Right. But, but I also, and I, and I just, and I do, when people start talking to me about that, I, I tell them, Hey, I'm not the guy you want to use this language with. Like, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I have zero respect for this, the tenor of this conversation. You could just tell me you don't want to, uh, or something like that. Right now. Uh, and then people talk a lot about, I don't know, I'm called to this people group or I'm called to this place or I'm called to this thing. And I, 
I love that. Like, I'm like, good, give yourself to it. However, I think for the church, there is something like general calling prior to specific calling. So I go, look, uh, you know, it's very like, I don't know, things like there's no more repeated charge in scripture than welcome the stranger. And yet you engage with no strangers and there's God's heart for the poor and love of neighbor. And there's so many general callings to generosity and goodness. And, and it's like, I don't know how we get to specific calling before we do just being a Christian, just learning how to love and give and, you know, go ahead. I see you want to yes. <laughs> jump, jump right in. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. So, and listen, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit that I probably in my work contributed to this problem. Right. And I'll take some hmm. responsibility. For How so? I mean, I, well, I wrote a book called called the grit. There's a lot of money to be made in like writing about this word calling. Now, if you actually open the book and read it, I think you'll understand the point that I'm well, trying to make. You are called to create. You were created I am. to create. That's exactly right. But it is a general it is a general. Yeah, 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 yeah. So here's here's the rub for me. Uh I do believe that we ought to do the work of finding the thing vocationally that we can do most exceptionally well for the glory of God and the good of others. And if you want to call that calling, I sometimes refer to that as calling great. But this here's here's why sure. I'm starting to have a problem. I think we believe that we need God to approve of our plans for our career. I got to be careful here because this is like I'm just starting to think through these ideas. But like God doesn't need you. Mm. He doesn't need me doing this specific job. He needs the church as a whole to go out in the world and live into this general calling that Jesus gave us. Right. But like whether or not I'm going to be a doctor is like inconsequential to God's plan. He is God. If he wants to bring healing to the person that I'm called to serve as a doctor, he can do it with or without me. I can step into that role as doctor or he will use somebody else. Do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah, so absolutely. Like, and I think that realization is tremendously liberating, yeah. right? Because now I can say, okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in living my life with these principles. I believe that as a Christian, I should have exceptionally high standards for my work. And thus, I ought to do the work of, fi of finding what work I can do most exceptionally well. But there's a lot of freedom in that choice. If you have found something that you love— and that more importantly loves others well in mm. your work. That's calling, if that's what you want to sure, call it. Just sure. do it. Just make a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need to sit around waiting for the Lord to flash on a billboard Burning that bush. this is the yeah. thing that you're supposed to do because if you're loving your neighbor as yourself through your work, you're already doing the thing that he's called you to do. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Well, it does. And I mean, some of the earliest understanding I have of even you reference Genesis 1 and 2 is we're free. Right. And you're called to be free. And now f we, as we talked about, freedom can be paralyzing because right. a decision right. is imperative. It is, it you is have paralyzing. to do something. Yeah. And as you walk in that, you, you learn and you grow and you'll pivot and you'll change yeah. and you'll develop. And, and, uh, and, and, and in that sense, I'm like, yeah, you're called to figure it out. Yeah. You're called to, to yeah, work that's exactly right. at the, at the job at you're hand. You're called to work at finding the work. Figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm curious. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to transition fine, a little bit because I, I jotted a note down. I yeah. wanted to circle back. You said we're asking our kids to decide too early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Now we're saying right now, well, you got to figure it out. Yeah. But then you're also saying, but, but I don't need to press my child yeah. to figure it out at eight years old or whatever, however old they are. Um, do you have something like a rule of thumb? Do you, do you have something like, I mean, obviously this isn't going to be an age cause it's a maturity level. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I've known young people that know exactly mm-hmm. what they're going to do, but, or, you know, you know, you're, you're 14 and you're going to be a, what'd you say? A Republican, right. a Republican, <laughs> Republican operator. And, and now you're writing Christian right. books. It's right. not, you right. know, maybe that it are, maybe that's a no, but like, what, yeah. What are we, what, what would you say as a phase of life development? Yeah. Right. So you go, yeah. no, you should be pretty generalist, especially early on. Yeah. Yeah. As a general rule of thumb, I do subscribe to that. Right. I think you should be a generalist for a while. Right. Until, until, but not forever, right? Like it's you're you're a generalist for a reason. You're a generalist because you're trying to experiment widely to find the thing that's going to stand out from all the rest that you're going to like double down on. If you find that at age fourteen, cool, right? Like if it's like like I'll give you a good example. I had this woman on my podcast who I adore. Her name's Juliana Slager. She was a professional ballerina for like a decade. Now she's like co-founded this ballet studio in hmm. Chicago, and she knew ballet was her thing at age seven. And she says she wished she had committed to it at five. She's like, I wish I had doubled down a ballet when I was five years old and like gotten, because I, I would have just been so much further ahead. So if you know that that's the thing, great. But I don't think most people do. I, I, I think most people, it takes a lot, lot longer than that to be so confident that this is the thing that they want to dedicate their life to. Um, and if you do it at 14, like I did, right, with politics, Cool. That's okay. You may come to a point in your career, like I did, what eight years after that, to say I want to pivot, and that's all right. Like, especially with this master of one concept, uh, you know, I make a I make a point in the book to say you're choosing one thing to commit to at this season of life. That's right. And that season may be very long. It could be forty years, like it was for Fred Rogers, right? Uh, or it could be five years until you pivot to something else. Uh, but you got to remember that like mastery requires discipline over time. Like there's no way around it. You can't get world class at anything unless you stick with it for a very long time, right? So um, that's why I tell people not to choose too early because uh, you, I, I want my kids to experiment widely and try a lot of different things so that they can make the very best choice of the thing that they're going to spend 5, 10, 30, 40 years getting great at. So I just remembered like a hundred things I wanted to ask you about and we have only a few minutes left. So that's, uh, that's not going to work out great, but talk, you just mentioned discipline and I know just because we have so many mutual friends (laughs) that you are particularly into that. You have a bit of a program to your life that you're, you, you are into GTD that you, that you have a, yeah. So an understatement that your program just, I mean, you get where I'm going. So talk to me about discipline and its role in your own life and vocation? Yeah, sure. So I'm an extremely disciplined person by the grace of God alone, right? Like I, um, so temperamentally, temperamentally, I'm just very disciplined, but I've also found that like, that's how I do the most meaningful work, uh, and the deepest work. I, we're we're both looking at a copy of deep work by Cal Newport. I think Mm -hmm. to do deep work, uh, that leads to tremendous output. You, you gotta be very disciplined. Yeah. So my days are incredibly structured. Uh, this is a rarity. We're recording this at 6 a.m. Usually I am with my kids until 7.45 in the morning that I'm at my desk. And I, I tend to break my day into chunks of 90-minute blocks of totally focused time. So 
from 7.45 uh, until 9.15, I will sit down and I will focus on one project, right? So it'll be, it's usually very specifically defined. So it'll be like outline chapter three of the next book, right? I'll take a 15 minute break. I come back, I do it again, right? 90 minutes of focus. on and, and these 90 minute blocks are like crucial to my day, right? Because uh, I have no distractions. My phone is on do not disturb. I've never had push notifications on my computer, right? Like with email or anything like that. Uh, totally focus, absorb time. And then I check, I choose when I check email. I choose when I check messages, right? So I check email twice a day, uh, typically before my second 90 minute block. And then at the very end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And just, I have found that that routine and that discipline uh, is what enables me to be creative which may sound like an oxymoron but like creativity thrives in structure yeah uh, yep. and in, in creativity thrives when there's confinement right yep. so i've confined my schedule i have the same exact schedule almost every day it says okay this is how i'm going to do it this is the tempo for the day and of course that changes as meetings comes up whatever but it it, it removes the necessity for me to think and plan about how I'm going to structure every day. I just start with a template and start with how I'm going to work and kind of adjust from there. But it is, you mentioned GTD, getting things done by David Allen. Uh, I was just telling somebody yesterday, no book, no book has been more foundational to how practically I work day in and day out for a decade. I've been implementing GTD. such a gift, man, such a gift to the world. Uh, really. Have you read it? Yeah, I have. And I listened to his, I mean, I'm more audio oriented, yeah, yeah. so I listen to every sure. single podcast they put out. And, yeah. But I, and, and I'll just confess, like, so I am, I desire discipline. Yeah. I am, I am like in the, in the temperamental conscientiousness. Yeah. I am very industrious, but I am not orderly. Uh, so I come out pretty average yeah. on that. Like yeah. I'm not very orderly by nature. And so I try to apply industriousness to be orderly. Yeah. Um, but it, but I break down. And so my, my Achilles heel with the GTD methodology is really, uh, the weekly review yeah. man. and, and, oh. and like you miss it and it just, the wheels come off weekly review. So it's so critical. You got it. You got it. You got to stay, you got to stay. Cr- I've started, so I have two calendars. I have my, what most people would typically call a calendar date and time specific stuff. So recording this podcast is in my red calendar. Then I have a green calendar called blocks, which just describes the work that I'm going to do in each of my 90 minute blocks. It's the template. That's exactly right. But what I started doing is weekly review used to be a block. It used to be green and green is not date and time specific. So it's fudgeable. You can move those things around. I started putting my weekly review in red. It's like, nope. My weekly review every week is at three o'clock on a Friday. This so is an appointment is as an appointment. It, or more important than any of these other appointments. It is more important I, yeah, than yeah. anything else, right? Yep. Like this is what keeps me operating at a really high level, right? So I try, I keep it religious. I really do. Like I'm very, I'm very religious about the weekly review, but see, here's the crazy thing. I'll go speak to people and, uh, the, in the last month I've probably spoken to a total of, I don't know, 2,500 people at conferences and I'll ask the whole audience to raise their hand if they've ever read getting things done by David Allen, or I often ask deep work by Cal Newport, not a hand in the room, really? which is like a great encouragement by the way, as an author, I see these guys, I'm like, Oh my gosh, GTD sold 500,000 copies. Cal Newport is one of my all time favorite authors, sold yeah. hundreds of thousand copies and the world still has needs, no idea still needs this stuff articulated in different ways yeah, right? yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, there's yeah, true. there's no monopoly on content and there never will be 
you need so many different personalities saying things so many different ways. That's why I'm so grateful for you doing this podcast, right? Like people ask me all the time, like, oh man, are you trying to like own the faith of work market? I'm like, no, I'm trying to be a leader in it. I want to build a massive community around these ideas. But my prayer is that there are 50 people like me who commit their life to helping us embrace a more human vision of of work and going back to the garden and embracing work is this very good god honoring thing so i know we gotta wrap up here so i i will set aside all the other (laughs) curiosities i have and hopefully you and i can get some time offline i'd love to chat about but the idea that even just as you said like do you want to do this thing with faith and work yeah the thing that my mind goes to is that faith is work. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I believe yes. that, I, by the way, P, hang on. Yeah. I loathe, loathe the term faith and work. I use okay. it. I use it. <laughs> okay, I okay. use it because it's somewhat shorthanded people and people, some it. people understand oh, the overlap, it, but I hate it. Yeah. I hate it for all the reasons that you're about to expound upon much more eloquently than me. So continue. Well, now I'm going to ask you to speak to that because I, 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 yeah, I, I go, well, you know, look, People are like, in the ultimately to be a disciple, the root word is discipline, right? It is behavioral. It is, you're like, I believe in God or whatever. Or oh, you tell me, I love the poor. I'm like, which one? Who? What's his right. name? Right. Like, right. Uh, be like, specific. Be who concrete. are we talking right. about? Yeah. There's, yeah, like the abstract made concrete. This is what Jesus is, right? It's the logos made flesh, yeah. put into flesh. Yeah. And it takes work. It takes train so rather than saying i'm trying to love i would say stop trying start training right train to love train to give train train yourself work at this right and and i guess i maybe just want to ask you in closing there's like a final word couple things so one like just to speak to like what the work of faith yeah and then just let people know what you want them to know where they could find you that kind of thing to close this out so the work of faith this is why i hate faith and work (laughs) I, here's what I want to say, but it's like too long and I got to find a way to like tighten it up. But like, well, it's your schedule. That's exactly right. <laughs> I talk about, I talk about work from a Christian perspective, right? If you want to call that faith and work, put whatever label you yeah. want on it. But like work is the way in which we live out the Christian life. Yeah. Work is not the only way, but I would argue a primary way since, you know, we spend a third of our waking hours working. Work is a primary way in which we review, what does, what does it mean to glorify God? I love Piper's definition. We, we throw in the term glorifying the church mm-hmm. all the time. What does it mean? I don't think anyone can really tell you. I'll trust John Piper though. Piper says work, uh, that, that to glorify God means simply to reveal his character. That's yeah. it, to reveal his character. So work is how we glorify God. It's how we reveal the character of yeah. the only God in any major religion that's ever said, I myself work, mm. I myself create, and how we love neighbor self. I don't know how to put it any more simply than that. That is, that's why I'm so passionate about work, any work, the work of entrepreneurs specifically, yep. but really anybody that's doing anything productive in the world that is a means of revealing God's character and loving mm. neighbor self, right? So that's what gets me fired up. And by the way, back to your point about I only talk to Christians, uh, just a little rabbit trail here. So this is like, this is strategic. Right? Well, I know. So like, right? I know. Okay, it's good. very yeah. clear. It, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm such a big believer. It's smart by the way. It's like, oh, I should have done that, but yeah. <laughs> I'm such a big believer in blue ocean strategy. Yeah. Peter Thiel, zero yeah. to one. 
competition's overrated. Way overrated. Uh, I was at I was at an event. I was at, sorry. This is a little. Uh, we're going down a bunch of rabbit trails. I'm good. I was, with at, it. I was at an event with um, Dave Ramsey's team up in Nashville this past weekend. They had a. Uh, it was very generous of them. They hosted 50 quote unquote influencers. I have oh, no wow. idea what that means, and just sharing best practices, whatever. And I'm looking around the room, and these guys are like smart people. Mm-hmm. Mo- but out of the 50 people in the room, I think 48 of them were writing about the exact same thing. They were writing about money. They were writing about debt, which I get. I, I'm writing about work, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's great. Lots of people need these messages, but like, man, is that red ocean. These people are just warring over each other for like mm. market share. And they, they don't have a spirit of competitiveness, sure, which sure, I love. Sure, it's cooperation. Sure, sure. But like, I'm in a fairly blue ocean. Like yeah. nobody is raising their hand as a practitioner, not a pastor, not an academic, as a practitioner. That's right. Somebody that's right. who spent a decade in well, business. Well, practitioners aren't writing books. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's the problem. That's exactly right. Which, which is why I had to close the practitioner chapter well, thank you. to write thank you. this yeah, and that's say, it. That's exactly now right. I'm committing my life to this. And right now, like, there's not a lot of competition out there. And frankly, I want competition. I, I want more people raising their hands saying, yeah, I'm going to talk about this. But nobody is saying, I'm just going to talk to Christians about how the gospel of Jesus Christ, how the way, how apprenticeship to Jesus Christ yep. changes how I think about my contribution to the world. Anyways, all right, uh, where you can find me. Uh, yeah, very yeah, yeah, very yeah. easy, jordanrainer.com, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-Y-N-O-R.com. Um, yeah, that's where you can find everything. It's Book, all available podcast, there. It's all there. Lots of, free, lots of free stuff, free weekly devotional. If you're on version and you just search Rainer in the reading plan section of the app, you'll find 20-something plans that we've written there that you can start reading or listening to right now. Yeah, That's awesome. Yo, man, I know how much you value your time. Thank you so much for oh, sharing it with you. us. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for the work that you're yeah. doing. Appreciate you, man. Hey, real quick before you go, I want to invite you to join the conversation. One of the first comments that was left on one of the first episodes was somebody saying that they wanted to join in the conversation the entire time. And I've heard that from a few of you, and I really want to invite you to do that. So if you go to workethicpodcast.com, there is a link to join the conversation where you can click that link and chime in, uh, maybe answer what success is to you, what's your earliest memory of work, your own experience of, of what triggers flow state or your own understanding of grit, but I want to invite you to join the conversation. I would also like to invite you to help grow this conversation and this podcast and show. So if you would, please share, please subscribe, please leave feedback on the show, uh, rate it, uh, comment on socials. And then if you would, please, please, please consider supporting uh, the cost, the expense that this show is becoming, and also uh, kind of my own work uh, with the podcast and with the well and well-built bikes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash the work ethic, or there's also a link at workethicpodcast.com. Thank you so much for considering it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for being a part of this conversation and this project.